Our scripture this morning comes from Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Stacy. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we look into Mark's gospel this morning, would you help us to see Jesus and his free offer of mercy for all who call on him. We ask this to his glory. Amen. Stephen is a friend of mine. He lives in Memphis. He battled cancer years ago and he defeated cancer. He had many rounds of chemotherapy that made him weak. And he told me the story of one day, uh, he was in a hospital room, laying in his hospital bed. He had just received one round of chemotherapy that had made him so weak. But Stephen was excited because a friend of his was going to visit him that day, that afternoon. So he spent all morning trying to get up enough energy so that when his friend came in the room, he could get out of bed and take a few steps toward his friend and give him a hug. So he spent the whole morning trying to eat right and just marshalling all the energy that he could. Finally, a knock came on the door and his friend came in and Stephen said he got out of his bed and he took one step to reach toward his friend and immediately fell down to the ground. He was not hurt in that moment, but he lay there on the ground and did not have the strength to pick himself up. His cheek lay against the cold hospital floor. And he told me later he did not have the strength to even pull his head up off of that floor. Now he told me that story because he also said to me, Andrew, that was the first time in my life in which I really understood the grace of God. That was the first time he said that he understood that as Jesus is at work in his life, Jesus does all of the work. That grace is entirely a gift and that we don't earn or merit it in any way. I wonder this morning as you think about your life, if you might be in a similar position to my friend Stephen, where you may have a profound and deep physical weakness, an unexpected diagnosis that has come and you've given all that you can and you have nothing more to give and you feel 
powerless. It may not be a physical disease, even a lifelong disability. It might be something else. It might be a certain heartache that every day drives you to call out to the son of David for mercy. It could be a relationship with a parent that is broken, a relationship with a child that needs serious mending. It could be that you have a feeling that your life has not turned out the way you want it to, and there's a persistent sense of heartache, and you feel powerless, confused, sorrowful, and hurting. Mark's gospel is here to reach you and I in precisely those sorts of moments. God, through Mark's gospel, is here to convince us that he redeems our suffering. He allows it sometimes to push us to our limits where we have nothing else left to give, where our cheek, too, is pressed against that cold hospital floor and we have nothing else to do but to cry out, Son of David, please give me mercy. We see that sort of powerlessness here in the story of Bartimaeus. He's done all he can do. He's a blind man. And he spends his days laying alongside of the road or sitting alongside of the road, calling out for mercy, for help, for alms, for something. His blindness that he's had for so many years has reduced him to Begging. There are few social safety nets at that time. And so he is reduced to sitting on the side of the road day after day, pleading for help. He is powerless. He calls out to those who go by, sometimes calling out to, to, to no one who is there. But on this day, the Son of Man walks by. And so he cries out as loud as he can, Son of David, have mercy on me. So there's Bartimaeus by the side of the road. In our story, but there's also a crowd. Jesus is leaving the city of Jericho with a lot of people around him, including the disciples. It's a huge crowd because it's that time of year for the annual pilgrimage for God's people to head to Jerusalem. At this time of year, every year, God's people would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, to celebrate the freedom from slavery in Egypt so many years ago for God's people. And so you have Jesus leaving Jericho, about to make a 15-mile journey to the west, to Jerusalem with a big crowd, with a lot of disciples around him. We also know that the crowd in moving toward Jerusalem would be singing and reciting Psalms 120 to 134, singing about the grace of God. So in our story, Jesus leaves Jericho with this giant crowd. Jesus and the crowd hears this man yell out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what does the crowd do? The crowd looks at Bartimaeus, this powerless man by the side of the road, and says, be quiet. Be quiet. Be silent. The scripture even says that he is rebuked. How dare you call out? You don't have any social capital to give, no social savvy. You don't have any money to give. You're not going to help him at all. Why in the world would he help you? Why cry out for him? He's not going to pay any attention to you. He's not going to give you any mercy. It's as if the crowd is saying to him, look, Jesus's mission does not include powerless people. Much of the crowd would no doubt think that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to set up a kingdom of Israel that would beat back those Romans 
They did not understand that Jesus came for powerless people. The disciples, in fact, are part of the crowd and they don't grasp it either. They've been with Jesus day and night for three years and they still don't understand that Jesus has come to redeem a dying world and to minister to powerless people. They don't understand mercy. We know they don't understand what's going on because earlier in Mark chapter 10, the scripture says that parents were bringing a lot of their children to Jesus to be healed or to receive blessing or just to meet the Son of God. And what did the disciples do? They rebuked the parents. How dare you bring your children to Jesus? He doesn't have time for you. Your children aren't worthy of his attention. They're not worthy of his mercy. Why? Because they don't seem to offer him anything. And you can't have the mercy of Jesus unless you offer something or you bring something to the table. Now, that's absurd. The disciples don't even understand that Jesus wants children to come to him. And so Jesus is indignant. He's very upset. He turns to the disciples and he says, no, it's the entirely opposite of what you think it is. For to these children belongs the kingdom of heaven. And also, disciples, you need to become like them and have a childlike faith as you come to me. The disciples are not understanding that. Right after that happens, Jesus takes the disciples aside and he explains again. And he says, in effect, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be spit upon, mocked, and killed, and I will be raised up on the third day. He's sharing with them the most intimate story of what is about to happen. How do the disciples respond in Mark chapter 10? They really ignore what he has to say. And James and John pull Jesus aside and say, I need to talk to you for a minute. Jesus turns to James and John and says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? James and John then turn to Jesus and say, look, when you go to heaven and you're seated at the right hand of God, the father, can you maybe set up some places of prominence for us? They don't get it, do they? They're not understanding why Jesus came, that he came to serve, not to be served. They don't grasp the mission of Jesus. They really don't even grasp very well who Jesus is because the disciples look at Bartimaeus, who's powerless. They look at the children who don't seem to offer much and say, God doesn't have time for them. It is absurd. But the Bible paints a clear picture of who Jesus is, that he is meek, that he's mild, that he is eager to seek and save the powerless, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. That he's come to take our burdens, not to add to them. And in response to James and John, Jesus says to them, look, the son of man did not come to be served, but came to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve Bartimaeus, to serve children, to serve you and I as well. The crowd doesn't get it. But God is at work. So Bartimaeus is powerless. He cannot save himself. He cannot heal his own blindness. He cannot meet his greater need for forgiveness. But he's not without hope. So you have these two characters, Bartimaeus and the crowd, and they are worlds apart. There's Bartimaeus sitting by the side of the road, living in darkness in this physical blindness, calling out. His days are full of fear, wondering if he'll be safe, hoping he'll have enough food to eat. He's physically blind. 
But then the crowd carries a spiritual blindness as well. They're walking to Jerusalem but still don't understand the kingdom that Jesus is building. So here's the question this story proposes to us. Who is worse off? Upon the first reading of the story, we might immediately say it's Bartimaeus. He can't see. He's the one who's worse off. But really, no. Bartimaeus understands that this is the son of David, as being referenced from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the one who's come to fulfill the covenant obligations of the Old Testament. Bartimaeus understands that this is the son of God, and he will soon be healed. No, the crowd is far worse off. Jesus is walking there in Israel. It might as well be that that crowd is in Mongolia. They do not understand what Jesus is doing. And there's a real spiritual blindness that needs to change in that crowd. And so Jesus then gets, gets to work in healing Bartimaeus and in helping the crowd with their spiritual blindness as well. Now, in most Bible stories, as we read them, we need to look at them and think about which character we are. How do we fit in the story? Like with the parable of the prodigal son. You hear that story of the younger son who runs off to the, to the far country and squanders what he has and then comes back. That is you and me. In the parable of the prodigal son, you and I are the older brother too, not understanding grace much of the time. Angry, thinking that we contribute something to what Jesus has done. We're the older son, we're the younger son in that story. In this story, who are you? <clears throat> Which one are you? Are you part of the crowd this morning? Believing that you must clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. You have to pray enough. You have to be kind enough to your family and friends. You have to attend church a lot before Jesus really will pay much attention to you. You have to bring something to the table and then he will respond. Is that you this morning? That used to be what I believed as a teenager. In 1994, President Richard Nixon passed away, and I remember opening up the newspaper that day and seeing a political cartoon featuring Richard Nixon, and the political cartoon was Richard Nixon coming to the pearly gates of heaven, wondering if he would be allowed in. Seated at the table there with a whistle and a pen and a clipboard was St. Peter in the political cartoon checking to see who would be allowed in and who would not be allowed in. So there stood Richard Nixon. And there were two piles of papers on this desk. And one pile of paper was Richard Nixon's bad deeds. And the other pile was Richard Nixon's good deeds. And in the cartoon, the good deeds pile slightly outweighed the bad deeds pile for Richard Nixon. Now, I understand what the political cartoonist was saying there, that maybe Richard Nixon did so many good things after he became president that that maybe outweighed some other things that he did. But nevertheless, that cartoon is profoundly disappointing because it is a lie. We would like to believe that if we do enough good things, we can cancel out the bad things that we've done. That is what I used to believe. Maybe it's something that you struggle with right now, working so hard on a sort of spiritual treadmill, believing if you do enough that you can prove yourself to Jesus and merit his attention and live with him forever. That is not true. That is not how it is when it comes to matters of salvation and eternity. 
If you pass away before Jesus comes first, you go straight to Jesus. He welcomes you with open arms. And if there is a sort of desk of a list of good deeds and bad deeds, let me tell you what it's like. There is a, there may be a category of bad deeds, but nothing in it. Because the scripture says, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. Jesus completely buries them through the power of the cross. And your list of good deeds goes up through the ceiling, through the clouds, so to speak. Why? Not because we're so wise or noble or brave and done so many great things. No, our list, our record before God the Father is the record of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. That is what it is like. That is the gospel, that we are sinful and in desperate need of the mercy of forgiveness. And the blind man gets that. It's the point of the gospel here to call us to believe. Are you in the crowd in a sort of spiritual slavery far from Jesus in church here this morning, but far from him thinking you have to offer something to merit his attention? Or are you Bartimaeus? Are you the blind man by the side of the road who feels your insufficiency before God? I think we may be like Bartimaeus in three respects. The first is that Bartimaeus is a beggar. His blindness, his wounding, his hurt has reduced him to begging on the side of the road. And he understands on a very deep level that he is entirely dependent upon the mercy of Jesus. You and I are as well. The scripture says that it is only in Jesus that we live and move and have our being. The scripture says that in Jesus, all things consist or hold together. It's by the word of Jesus that the sun keeps shining. It's by the word of Jesus that the planets continue in their orbit and don't go spinning out. It's by the word of Jesus that the molecules in our body stay together and hold together. Every breath we receive come, that we receive comes from the sustaining word of Jesus in our life. And all power that we have is derived. It's given to us from God. We are entirely dependent on him. And that's part of spiritual maturity, acknowledging this full dependence. It's not weakness. It is God-given strength. Bartimaeus understands that. He is a beggar and we are beggars too. Like Bartimaeus, you may have a physical need, a profound physical need this morning that you feel at every waking moment. And like Bartimaeus, we all have spiritual needs, the need for forgiveness, the need for spiritual renewal and power that we might follow Jesus. We're like Bartimaeus. We may not know what to ask for or how to pray in regard to our suffering. We're powerless by the side of the road, crying out to Jesus. The good news is that Jesus has all of the power. Though Bartimaeus is powerless, you and I are powerless. Jesus is powerful and eager to give us this power. We are never without hope. Now, Jesus has his own worries and sorrows. Imagine that. He's leaving Jericho with this huge crowd around him that's excited to finally go to Jerusalem Jesus has his own concerns. He is sorrowful and hurting. He knows what he is about to do. And so there's a crowd around him. He has a plan that he's going to ride a colt into Jerusalem. But Jesus is never too busy for hurting people. And so he stops. 
He listens, he cares, and he acts. He does something that's really amazing here. Two things in particular that Jesus does. He stops this giant crowd. And then second, he turns toward Bartimaeus and speaks to those around him and says, call him, call him. Now, if you've watched the Rocky movies, which there are many, or the Rocky films, you know that at some point near the end of the film, Rocky or some boxer is in a fight and he's getting beaten down and he's really taking a beating through those first three rounds and you just want him to fight back, right? And then it gets to round eight or round 10 of the boxing match and all of a sudden you get this look of determination in Rocky's eyes and the music begins to swell and you know that it's about to happen, right? And you feel that, okay, believe it or not, this is the moment in that story where Jesus stops the whole crowd and simply looks over and says, call him, call him. He's about to heal Bartimaeus and teach the crowd and teach us too what his mission is. And so Bartimaeus, it's worth noting, is vulnerable here. He takes a risk, but it's all he can do. He's lost virtually everything. Jesus stops the crowd because he is loving. He also stops the crowd, the crowd because of the inherent worth of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus bears the image of God. He is not powerless and worthless. He is the image of God, in fact. Scripture says that we were created a little bit lower than the angels and that the angels, even now, when they see the work of God in our lives, observe that work and then in turn turn to God the Father and sing his praises. Bartimaeus bears the image of God and Jesus is teaching the crowd and teaching us here that every person is of an inestimable worth because they bear God's image. So Jesus stops everything. Everything changes in this crescendo moment. And Jesus asks this puzzling question, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question that he asked James and John earlier when they wanted seats of prominence. It's the same question that he asks other people who want things too. He turns to the blind man and says, what do you want me to do for you? The question is a real gift. It's not as if Jesus doesn't break his stride to Jerusalem, sees Bartimaeus, and then just sort of motions, then he's healed, but then ignores him and keeps going. No, Jesus grants him a real dignity here, a real conversation, a real connection as he's teaching those around him too. And he simply says, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, Bartimaeus' response is essentially, I want to see I really want to see in this moment. So then Jesus gives mercy abundantly. And he does it in three ways. First of all, Jesus gives the mercy of faith. The mercy of faith. Bartimaeus is not going to call out son of David unless he's been given that grace ahead of time. Bartimaeus has been given the gift of faith. That's the first mercy that he receives in that he sees spiritually that Jesus is the son of God. The second mercy is the mercy of compassion, where Jesus stops everything, even though he has so much to do that week, and then begins a conversation with him. There's the mercy of faith, the mercy of compassion, and then the mercy of new life as well. Jesus meets Bartimaeus in his darkness and gives him physical sight, and the angels celebrate. But it's not just physical sight, but spiritual sight that, of course, 
he is received as well. He sees the Son of Man for who he is, the real Son of God who's come to redeem the whole world. Jesus then, in saving Bartimaeus and granting him that sight, then moves on to Jerusalem and Bartimaeus follows him. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to secure the salvation for Bartimaeus to care for his spiritual needs as well. Jesus does the same for you and I. He grants you and I three kinds of mercy for all who come to faith in Christ. The first is the mercy of faith. You and I call out, we cry out to Jesus only because he has called us first. Because the Holy Spirit has opened up his eyes. It's the mercy of faith that he gives. It's also the mercy of compassion. Jesus gives you and I his full attention always. When we cry out in the middle of the night, he stops the crowd, so to speak, and gives us his full attention. He asks the same question, what do you want me to do for you? Which is an opportunity to reflect upon our greatest needs. And then he gives the mercy of new life. And he gives physical healing. Now Bartimaeus was blind for years and then experienced healing in this life. The truth is we may suffer for years and years in this, in this life and only experience a small measure of healing. But the promise of God is that he will heal us of all of our diseases. That promise is in Psalm 103, which we mentioned earlier in the call to worship. And so for some of our physical ailments, God heals them entirely in this life. But for some of our physical disabilities and diseases, he does not heal them until the start of the next life. But his promise remains that we will be fully healed, both body and soul. It's also then a spiritual healing. For when Jesus marches on to Jerusalem to die, to secure the salvation for Bartimaeus, he's also thinking of you and me too, to grant us eternal life, to be with him and his people forever. So Bartimaeus believes and he follows Jesus. What then should be our response to suffering? It's the message of Mark here. When we suffer, what is it that we're called to do? And it's simply this, believe. Believe. That is the message of Mark. When we are confused and hurting, when we labor in darkness and don't know what tomorrow will bring or even the next week, we call out Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then God is at work. His grace is at work in our lives. And like Bartimaeus, we offer nothing. It's not as if God needs our money or needs our social capital to somehow build his kingdom. No, we offer stubbornness and sin. But nevertheless, Jesus' healing comes. He meets Bartimaeus in his darkness and he meets us in our darkness too and then leads us into light. The call of Mark's gospel to us is this, to believe. To believe. When I was a little boy, I grew up in Cleveland, Mississippi, and my mother signed me up for uh, swimming lessons. And so there I, there I was, four years old, brought to Delta State University for swimming lessons, and I remember them well. On the first day I was there, uh, I practiced kicking and blowing bubbles, and I was excellent at both feeling very confident about my kicking skills and bubble-making skills. Went home, told my parents all about it. But then came day two. I remember, well, standing by the side of the Delta State pool and my 
instructor said to me, Andrew, uh, or Andy, uh, wait right there. And he reached over to the side of the pool and he picked up this black metal chair and he put it in the water in the shallow end right in front of him. Then he reached for me and picked me up and set me on top of this black metal chair. And so there I was standing there. And he said to me, I want you to put your hands on my shoulders. And so my tiny hands then, I was trying to hold on, but there was a lot of water and mostly I wasn't holding on to his shoulders as well. And then do you know what he did? He reached down while holding me and kicked the metal chair out from under me in that moment. And I remember distinctly, even now, flailing. And my hands really weren't connected very well to his shoulders, you see. And I remember feeling in that moment confused, thinking, I thought you were nice. You know, (laughs) yesterday you were so nice and we're blowing bubbles. Now you're kicking out the black chair underneath me. Like, what are you up to? Not understanding what he's doing in that moment. But his hands were right around my waist, right? Clamped on a sort of death grip or a life grip, if you will. I'm going nowhere in that moment, right? And he began to calm me down in that. If you follow Jesus for any length of time, you know that sometimes he either does this or allows this. He kicks the chair, right? And in that moment, and you're confused and you don't understand, he seemed so nice yesterday, right? Why is he allowing this today, okay? He doesn't promise to explain it all in that moment, though one day he will. But what's going on in that moment? His hands are around you. It's a life grip, right? He's holding on in that moment. That's the message of Mark's gospel, that we need only to believe. And he holds us tight. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, I pray we pray this morning for everyone here who has felt the chair kicked out from under them and feels like they're not sure what's going to happen today, tomorrow, or next week. Lord, would you remind us now through this Lord's Supper that you are holding on to us and that your mercy is real. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.